Wow, this, so far this has already been a wonderful service. Uh, thank you kids and youth for all that you're doing today to lead us in worship. And there is more, uh, because after I give my little sermonette today, you're going to be hearing from a reader's theater um, from some of our, our youth and children. Uh, but before they come to set it up, uh, I want to look back and reflect on some of the hopes the people of God had for the coming Messiah. And one of those hopes comes from the book of Genesis. This is part of our series, Jesus Foreshadowed, Seeing the Messiah in Genesis. And one of the scriptures uh, that was recited by our kids was Genesis 49, verses 8 through 12. And in this chapter, uh, this is Jacob, the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. He's giving his final blessings over his sons before he dies. And two weeks ago, uh, we asked, how do we see Jesus in the Old Testament? How do we appropriately find him in the Old Testament? And one of the things that helps guide us in this task is looking back at uh, both Jewish and Christian interpretation of the scriptures over time. And so even well before Jesus, Jews saw in this passage, Genesis 49, the prophesied and promised Messiah, their king. And we could point to several sources about that. Many of the early church fathers also saw Jesus in this passage, Clement of Alexandria, Ambrose, and Chrysostom. The reformers, Martin Luther and John Calvin, they insisted that this passage pointed to Jesus Christ. But more important than church history, the Bible itself, both the Old and New Testament, they referenced this passage as a way of pointing to the Messiah Jesus. So we're on solid ground to say that, yes, this is a text that points to Jesus Christ. And it's a blessing, again, of Jacob, a prophetic blessing that describes the future of the tribe of Judah. So very quickly this morning, I just want to point out three things that this text says about the coming Messiah, the prophesied king. The first is this, the king will be praised for his victory over his enemies. The king will be praised for his victory over his enemies. And if you'd like to turn with me, Genesis 49, starting at verse 8. Uh, verse 8 says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Now, this is a funny play on words because Judah means praise. Uh, so praise will be praised by his brothers. Why will he be praised? Well, it says your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. This means triumph and victory over their enemies, total, total defeat of them. And then it says your father's sons will bow down to you. So in other words, the, the, in the future, the tribe of Judah will bring victory over their enemies. And the sons of Jacob, the rest of the tribes, they will bow down to the tribe of Judah. So Jacob is saying that the Judah will emerge as the leader of the tribes, which might be uh, a little bit startling at this point in Genesis because you probably thought it was going to be Joseph who would be the leader, remember? But Jacob is giving a prophetic blessing. And as we move through the biblical narrative, we see how this initially gets fulfilled when David becomes king. David, who is from the tribe of Judah. The kingship does come from Judah, and the other tribes do bow down. And this is the same David, who as a shepherd boy killed a lion, who defeated the giant Goliath, and then when he became, became king, subdued the enemies of Israel around him. And so this is what is described in the image of verse 9. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? So Jacob gives us this image of the lion 
the king of the beasts, the most powerful beast. Biblical scholar Victor Hamilton says, the lion having recently eaten has retired to its sleeping quarters to digest its meal. Even while it is reposing, while it's relaxing, nothing else tries to invade its territory. So powerful is the lion. And we know that David, in some ways, he fulfilled this in his day. Uh, but this passage and this image of the, the prophesied lion, this came to be an image of the Messiah hundreds of years after David. The Jews expected a, a future ruler, a future lion of Judah, who would come and save and deliver the people. And so on this side of the res resurrection, do we not see how Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of this passage? The Lion of Judah who came to be our king? And of course we do. But we know that in Jesus, he fulfilled this passage in a way that most did not expect. The king's brothers do praise him, but not for military success, but because he is Lord and God. The father's sons do bow down, but not to a military ruler, but as those who bend the knee and confess with their tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord. The lion did not defeat the Romans as they expected. He does not fight with the weapons of this world, but the lion won his great victory by becoming a human, defeating sin on the cross, defeating death by rising again. And he has silenced the enemy's accusations by his atoning blood shed on the cross. And now he powerfully exercises his lordship over the world and as king of his people. So he has won the great victory. He has defeated the, the great enemies of humanity, sin, death, and hell. And if, friends, he is the Lion of Judah, and if he is for us, then what do we have to fear? The Lion of Judah, the Lion of Judah is on our side. He is God with us, Emmanuel. And one day he will lead us into the ultimate victory of eternal life with him. That's why we praise him. The king will be praised for his victory over his enemies. The second thing I'd like to point out from this text is that the king will have a throne with worldwide submission. The king will have a throne with worldwide submission. In verse 10, it says that the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. Essentially, this verse is saying that kingship and authority will emerge from the tribe of Judah, the scepter and the staff being the ultimate signs of his authority and rule. Now we know that King David was the initial fulfillment of this prophecy and promise, but David didn't live forever. And even though, yes, David did subdue enemies around him, he never had a throne with worldwide submission of the nations. And so there is, this promise is yet to be fully fulfilled at David's time. And then we know that God promised David a future descendant. And I'd like just to bring that to your attention on the screen in 1 Chronicles 17, a promise to David. God says this to David, when your days are over and you go to be with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. So this promise from Genesis 49 is extended 
to an offspring, a descendant of David. So out of Judah, yes, authority will come forth, but now a descendant of David of the tribe of Judah will have an eternal throne. And the verse in Genesis says, the obedience of the nations shall be his. So brothers and sisters, this is, this is part of intergenerational. We love this. This is okay. <laughs> but friends, this is how God is going to save the world. Don't, don't miss this part. God is going to save the world in this way. Through a ruler coming from the line of Judah, a descendant of David who would rule over the nations. And because, do you remember in Genesis 12, God said to Abraham, you're going to be a blessing, and through you I will bless all the nations of the earth. Because God is trying to restore the, the, the curse of the fall back to his blessing. And so how are the nations going to participate in this blessing? Because a ruler from his people, from the genealogy of Abraham, from the tribe of Judah, from a descendant of David, who would come and by his rule, the nations would come into this people where they would be under the authority and blessing of this king. Do you see how God is saving the world through Jesus Christ? This is amazing. And we know that historically speaking, descendants of David, yes, they reigned on the throne in Jerusalem. For over 400 years, there was a descendant of David on the throne. But we know that these promises were not fulfilled by those earthly kings. And so the people of God, they wondered, when will this Messiah, when will this prophesied king finally come? And that's when we hear the good news from the angel in Luke 1. He says, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Do you see how God is tying this whole story together through Jesus. The blessing of Jacob, the promise of David coming to be fulfilled in Jesus. And now that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, he is working out the total fulfillment of this promise. Because did he not tell us? Go and make disciples. Of all, what? The nations. Teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Did it not, did it not say in Genesis 49, the obedience of the nations shall be his. So do you see that even now, Jesus is at the right hand working out the total fulfillment of this promise. We heard from our missionaries earlier in the greeting, the gospel going to the ends of the earth, the obedience of the nations shall be to Jesus Christ. He will have a throne with worldwide submission where every knee shall bow. And finally, friends, I'd like to point out in this text, that the king will usher in the prosperity of paradise. The prosperity of paradise. In verse 11 through 12, we kind of get a few interesting phrases. It says, He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Okay, that's really interesting. Now, What's going on here is a donkey would eat a vine if it was tethered to it. The donkey is going to eat that vine. And so if you tether a donkey to a vine, you don't care about losing that vine. 
So in other words, this is, like, this is like letting your dog play with money as a chew toy. Like you don't even care because there's so much abundance in prosperity. That is what, when the Messiah comes, that is the picture of abundance. And then there's the image of this abundance of wine that not only are they, are they pressing the wine, but it's covering all of their garments and their clothes. There's this, such an abundance of grapes and wine. One scholar says the man who can live without a thought bind or the man who can without a thought bind his mount to a vine and wash his garments in wine is living in paradise. That's the picture of paradise at that time. And so the age of the Messiah is often pictured through scriptures as this this age of paradise, this age of abundance. And David certainly brought some prosperity, some paradise, but not in this measure. And certainly with Jesus, we have every spiritual blessing, do we not? As it says in Ephesians, we have every spiritual blessing. He has seated us in the heavenly realms with everything we need in Christ. But yet there remains a greater fulfillment of this promise. And do you ever take the time to imagine what paradise is going to be like? When the new heavens and the new earth finally come? And it says we are going to feast in heaven forever and ever the image in Revelation is this, this, this gold, these golden streets and building this, this abundance of prosperity. Revelation says the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. And on, on no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. The picture of the final heavens and earth is the most glorious things you can imagine upon this earth. The most glorious nations, the most glorious splendor, all of that will be there and even better than you can imagine. Paradise on earth, the promised Messiah will usher this in. So this promise is that the king will be praised for his victory over his enemies, the king will have a throne with worldwide submission, and the king will usher in this prosperity. And friends, this king came to us as a human just like us, as the baby boy Jesus 2,000 years ago, born as the son of Judah, born as the son of David, the promised ruler. And I want to make, as I conclude, I want to make one more New Testament connection to this passage. When John gets the vision from heaven in Revelation, he, talks, he, this, he references this passage. And now in Revelation, you need to know that sometimes John will hear one thing and then he will see another thing. And this is a, a literary way of saying what he is hearing is the same thing as what he is seeing. But they often give us con- contrasting images of what's going on. So in Revelation 5, listen to what John first hears. One of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. The lion of Judah. We're back to Genesis 49. That one, that one who's to bring victory, he has has been victorious. Genesis 49 is fulfilled. God is working out these promises. But there's more. This is what John hears, the lion. Then in verse 6, the very next verse, it says, I saw 
a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. Oh, John heard that the Lion of Judah has triumphed, but what does he see? The Lamb who was slain. That's the king on the throne. We are to understand that these are one in the same. The Lion of Judah, he has triumphed by becoming the Lamb who was slain, who is now enthroned as the king of this world. And so now, friends, all of us, we are the fulfillment of Jacob's promise thousands of years ago because now we are the brothers and sisters who praise the Lion of Judah. We praise the king. We praise the one who came to be our ruler so that he could become the lamb who was slain for us and for our salvation. That's our king. And so, friends, now we are going to hear a scene from the early days of King Jesus and how early on people believed that he was fulfilling these promises and they praised him as king. Let's have our readers' theater come forward. When the wise men had visited King Herod, they left Jerusalem, and a star which they saw in the east went in front of them till it came and stood over the house where the young child was. Zilla, Zilla, have you set the table? Yes, mother. Then run outside and tell Uncle Joseph that supper's ready. And look up the road to see if Dad's coming. Okay. Uncle Joseph! Uncle Joseph! Now, Mary, let me take this little one and put him in the cradle while you eat your supper. Come along, lovely. Aren't you a beautiful boy? There. Now you go to sleep. The child is so sweet, isn't he? Almost never cries. Happiest baby I ever saw. He is happy in your kind home. But when he was born, he cried. Well, all babies do that. Can you blame them? Poor little things, seeing what a cruel, hard world they have been born into? Never mind. We all have things to cry about at times. Here's your husband. Come in, Joseph. I have supper ready for you. I'm sure you need it. Working so late at night, how could you even see what you were doing out there? Ah, it's a beautiful night. A huge white star is shining as bright as the moon. It seems like it's red over the house. Oh, and I've been in the fence. Well, Joseph, we're so lucky that you are such a fine carpenter, and you're so kind, doing all these little things for us, fixing the door, the fence, a new table. Well, that's the least I can do, especially when you've been so generous and shared your home with Mary and me and the little boy. Well, that was the least we could do. We couldn't have left you in that old stable. We wouldn't have been able to sleep knowing that there was a mother and baby without a good roof over their heads. Especially after what Dad told us about seeing angels and the little boy, the Messiah. There, Mary, you eat that. It will be good for you. Do you really think it's true about him being the promised Savior? I know it is true. You must feel very proud. Doesn't it seem strange, though, when you look at him and think about it? Him, the one that's been promised since the world began, and from all the prophets and King David? Very strange. Sometimes I feel like I'm holding the whole world in my arms. The sky and the sea and the earth and all of the angels. And then everything becomes quite normal again. And I remember that he is just my own dear son. If he grows up to be wiser than Moses, holy 
and more splendid than Solomon, he will always be my baby, my sweet Jesus, and I love him. Nothing can ever change that. Of course nothing can change that. Children are a great blessing. What's taking Zilla so long, I wonder? I hope she hasn't run off. There might be wolves about. Now where is she? Oh, mother, mother! Hello, Zilla, my girl. What's the matter? They're coming here. They're coming here. Dad's bringing them. Who's coming, for goodness sakes? Kings, three great kings riding on horses. They're coming to see the baby. Kings? Don't be silly. Kings indeed. But they are. They've got crowns on their heads and rings on their fingers and servants carrying torches. And they asked Dad, is this who the child is? And he said yes. And I was to run ahead and say that they were coming. She's right. I can see him from the window. I'm turning a corner, just by the palm trees. Oh my, and supper not cleared away? And everything a mess? Here, Mary, let me take your plate. That's better. Zilla, look in the dresser drawer and find a clean bib for the child Jesus. There you are. Oh, Mother, one of the kings is a very old gentleman with a long beard in a beautiful scarlet coat. And the second is all in glittering armor. Oh, and the third has jewels on his turban, twinkling like the stars, and though his skin is dark, his horse is as white as a mill, with silver bells on the bridle. What? All to honor our little Jesus? Don't be afraid, man. It's all coming true, just like the prophet Isaiah said. All the nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your eyes. Give me my son. Let me hold him. Of course. He'll sit on your knee, brave as a king on his golden throne. Look at him now, the precious lamb. Goodness, here they are. Is this the house? Yes, sir, this is the house. Please come in. I'm the child Jesus. He's here with his mother. Come in, my lords, come in. Please watch your heads. Our doorway is not high. Our house is only a poor, humble house. No place is too humble to kneel in. There's more holiness here than in King Herod's temple. More beauty here than in King Herod's palace. More love here than in King Herod's heart. Lady, clear is the sun, fair is the moon. The nations of the earth salute your son, the man born to be king. Hail, Jesus, King of the Jews. Hail Jesus, King of the world. Hail Jesus, King of heaven. God bless you, wise old man, and you, tall warrior, and you, dark traveler from desert lands. You come in a strange way and with a strange message, but I am sure that God has sent you, for you and his angels say the same things. King of the Jews. Why, yes, they told me he would be the Messiah of Israel. King of the world, that is a very great title. Yet when he was born, the angels brought news of great joy to all the nations. King of the heavens, I don't understand that. And yet they did say that he should be called the son of God. You are wise and educated men, and I am a very simple woman. I don't know what to say to you. I believe we must wait to understand all of this until my son is old enough to answer for himself. Yes. We wait to understand, even for those who are educated. The more we know, the less we seem to understand life. 
we do not feel wise. Doubts make us afraid to act, and the riddle that torments even the wise is this. Wisdom and love live together when this king sits on his throne. We are the rulers, and we see that men need good government with both freedom and order. But order puts chains on freedom, and freedom rebels against order, so that love and power are always at war together. And the riddle that torments us is this. Will power and love live together at last when this king is on his throne? I speak to your son for sorrowful people, for the ignorant and the poor, the sick. We get up to work and we lie down to sleep. And night is only a pause between one burden and another. Fear is our daily companion. The fear of war, the fear of a cruel death, and of an even more cruel life. But we could bear all this if we only knew that we did not suffer for no reason, if we knew that God was beside us in the struggle, and sharing the miseries and sadness of his own world. For the riddle that torments the sorrowful is this. Will sorrow and love be reconciled when this king is on his throne? These are very difficult questions. But with me, you see, it is like this. When the angel's message came to me, the Lord put a song into my heart. I suddenly saw that wealth and cleverness mean nothing to God. No one is too unimportant to be his friend. That was the thought that came to me because of the thing that happened to me. My family and I are not important, yet the power of God came upon me. I am very foolish and uneducated, yet the word of God was spoken to me. And I was in deep distress when my baby was born, and he filled my life with love. So I know that wisdom and power and sorrow can live together with love. For me, this child in my arms is the answer to all of the riddles. You have spoken wisely, Mary. You are blessed among women, and blessed is your son, Jesus. Caspar, king of Chaldea, salutes the king of the Jews with the gift of frankincense. Mary, you have spoken with power. You are blessed among women, and blessed is Jesus, your son. Melchior, king of Ethiopia, salutes Jesus. King of the world, with a gift of gold. You have spoken with love, Mary. You are blessed among women, and blessed is Jesus, your son. Balthazar, King of Pamphylia, salutes the King of Heaven with a gift of myrrh and spices. <coughs> Look at the gold crown! Look at the frankincense holder all shining with rubies and diamonds, and the blue smoke curling up. How sweet it smells. Myrrh and aloe, the sweet cloves and the cinnamon. Isn't it lovely? And all for our little Jesus. Let's see which one of his presents you like best. 
Come on, Jesus, smile at the pretty crown. What a serious, old-fashioned look he's giving it. He's laughing at the smoke of the incense. He likes the tinkling sound of the silver chains. Uh, he has stretched out his little hand and grabbed the bundle of myrrh. Well, and there you go. All these beautiful things, and he chooses myrrh. You just never know what a child will like. Don't we bury the dead with myrrh? See here, you sad king. My son has taken your sorrows for his own. Myrrh is for love also. As Solomon writes in his song, a bundle of myrrh is my beloved unto me. My lords, we thank you for all of your gifts. And as for the words you have said, you can be sure that I will remember them and consider them often in my heart. Have you been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod? The kings attend to their country by another route.